Welcome to Lost in the Movies. My sight and sound miniseries continues with a new movie each week that I haven't covered before on my site uh, that appears high on the Sight and Sound 2022 critics and directors lists. So in this case, it's actually a film which was higher on the director's list than the critics, Abbas Kiarostami's uh, 1990 Iranian film, Close Up. And this is one that I not only hadn't covered before, but I hadn't seen it before. So this is my fresh take on that movie. This film first appeared on the Sight and Sound list in 2002. Uh, Obviously, it was released after the 1982 list, so it wasn't even eligible for that one. And in 1992, it had uh, no votes that I could find on either list. There's sort of limited records of who voted for what, Uh, back in the day. In 2002, there was a 27-way tie for number 62. Basically, any film that received four votes was ranked at that number because they didn't have uh, that many critics participating. Uh, It wasn't on the director's list, I don't believe, at all that year. So uh, it leapt up in 2012 to a five-way tie for the critics number 43 and a seven-way tie for the director's number 37, which means Uh, 31 critics voted for it and 13 directors voted on it. So moving up, but still, you know, nowhere near the top 10. And then now in 2022, it got up to number nine on the director's list. So it was in the top 10. And then for the critics, uh, they had a little lower, but still number 17 there. So we're covering it third in the series because when you zigzag between the two lists, it's uh, below Jean Dielman and Beau Travai, but above the next couple ones I'm going to pick. So before we get to that um, discussion, I'm going to have, uh, well, a review, I guess, because it's just me talking in this one. Um, Jean Dielman, I had a guest, Ashley Brandt, and uh, Beau Travai was just me as well, as will the next two uh, be. But uh, I did want to mention that I have uh, one bit of recent work on my site. It's an October status update where I explain how I'm kind of wrapping up some film and TV commentary on my site uh, for the public. So you can check that out, and uh, it'll be linked in the show notes. And now for close-up. بازیهایی که بیشتر به کار هنری بخوره اینها چون مسئله مادی نداشتم I just watched Close Up for the first time. This is actually the first Abbas Kiarostami film that I've ever seen. I've been familiar with the director for a long time, but uh, I hadn't seen any of his works until this point. So uh, it was a fascinating viewing. It really took me on a journey that extended beyond the film itself. Afterwards, reading about it, reading about Kiarostami, uh, lots of ups and downs in that particular uh, exploration, let's say. But I want to start with the film itself. So the first scene of the film is a, a taxi ride from a police station with a journalist. And the journalist is explaining that they're going to arrest somebody who was impersonating a filmmaker. 
and uh, he's trying to explain who the filmmaker is. The taxi driver's not familiar. They get to the house. It's this like nice house at the end of a cul-de-sac behind the gate. And the, the journalist goes in and then the police go in and we just stay outside with the taxi driver. It's like a very, uh, I wouldn't call it minimalist exactly, but sort of tactfully withdrawn presentation of the situation. So we're, we're not going directly to the drama. We're sticking with the outsider. Uh, he goes over to like a pile of uh, leaves and stuff with some flowers on. He's picking the flowers and it dislodges this can that rolls down the street. Kind of a famous shot from this movie. And uh, this whole sequence was kind of fascinating, pretty absorbing, but um, really, in a way, not a good preparation for what the rest of the film would be. Uh, again, I hadn't seen any Kiarostami at this point, so I'm kind of acclimating myself to this world and thinking, okay, so this film is going to be kind of quiet, mundane, but poetic set pieces, like something like uh, a Pichapong Wersthickel's uh, films that I've talked about, um, one of which I talked about in a recent Patreon podcast, uh, Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, but you know he also made Syndromes of a Century, uh, Tropical Malady. So these are films I really enjoy, and I thought, okay, so that's the type of movie this is going to be. And really, this was close to being the only scene like that. First of all, it's one of only, I think, three purely fictional restaged sequences in the film. Uh, there's another scene later on where we see the uh, the man who's impersonating the film director uh, meet a woman on a bus, and, uh, you know, he describes to her how he wrote the screenplay he's reading, and she says, oh, you're that director, and then uh, they end up, you know, he, he says, oh, you can contact me and all of that. And then there's a later scene, which is basically corresponding to that first scene where he's inside the house talking to the family. Now, the fascinating thing about this, so, you know, most of the rest of the film is quasi-documentary. It's it's complicated. But the crazy thing about this is those, you know, quote-unquote reenactments where they're, like, depicting the... Uh, you know, these are reenactments. These are the greatest reenactments in history. It's not like those History Channel things where it's like a blurred shot of somebody representing the figure they're talking about. Uh, these are like fully staged, uh, fascinating, you know, well shot uh, scenes depicting the drama of what happened. And the people in it are played by the actual people themselves. So they're playing themselves. Um, the guy who fooled the family at least for a little bit until they had him arrested and then the family itself. So just to give background on this, uh, in 1989, there was a case that the director Kiarostami found out about where a poor divorcee whose life was kind of unraveling, Hossein Sabzian, uh, impersonated the director Mohsan Makhmalev, who had just made the film The Cyclist a couple years earlier. And uh, this, you know, th this guy claimed to a, uh, a family that he was this director and he wanted to shoot a film at their house. And they ended up, uh, you know, charging or, or, you know, notifying the authorities, having him arrested and charged with fraud. And they mentioned burglary as well, although apparently he was not actually tried on that particular charge or attempted burglary. The idea was that he had 
said he was this director to kind of weasel his way into their home and maybe case it for a burglary. But as you watch the film, at least as, you know, as it's presented, it seems clear that uh, Sabzian was much more, you know, his, his motives were a little more uh, obscure. He, it seems like he identified with this director based on his work and wanted to uh, kind of you know, live vicariously through other people's perception of him as that director. So much of the film is a close-up, appropriately given the title, of uh, this this accused man's uh, head in court as he's talking about his subjectivity, why he was motivated to do these things, and his confused state and all of that. And it's fascinating because Kiarostami shoots it like he, he, you know, the sequences following that first sequence are very documentaries, talking to guards, asking them to let him into the prison. He goes and talks to uh, Sabzian there and uh, is basically talks to the judge, is given access to the court and says, you know, can I ask questions? And there's a sense through all of this of sort of a scrappy underdog filmmaker getting miraculously getting access to this proceeding and being able to kind of participate in and maybe even shape it a little because he's allowed to ask questions while the judge is going. Now, there's a fascinating article on the Criterion website that basically presents this as all a ruse, that he was a very influential cultural figure at this time and he was basically able to throw his weight around, get the trial to go the way he wanted to go, even get the judge to deliver the verdict that he wanted him to deliver and, uh, you know, go from there. Now, it's it's interesting that after this trial, he then got the family and, you know, the, uh, the, the imposter to film these scenes where they're playing themselves. And again, these are like very well-acted, well-directed scenes. Um, I mean, the well-directed isn't surprising, but the well-acted is these were just, these were people playing themselves. And Kiarostami has talked in interviews about how they wanted to represent a certain you know, side of themselves, their own version of the story, and these were in conflict as he tried to direct it. Uh, the scene in which the character goes to the house one more time, the character, the actual person, you know, it's it's so confusing to talk about the terminology of this. He goes to the house one last time, and he can kind of tell that he's been caught out and he's being trapped. And there's like a greater and greater sense of just the net tightening around him and you can sense his despair, his feeling that, you know, he's been living this dream and the dream is about to crash down. It's just a beautifully executed sequence. And the fact that it takes place in the middle of this pseudo documentary is just like another level of, of incredible to this. And the film actually ends, you know, I guess spoilers, it's kind of hard to talk about this film with not talking about, you know, where it goes. Uh, Mock is uh, the, the actual director who this this person was impersonating. He shows up at the prison, takes Sabzian on his motorcycle and rides off, and there's sound issues where the sound keeps cutting out during this sequence. And, uh, you know, so we don't get to hear much of what they say to each other, but then they get to the house, they're welcome to the house, and there's this kind of uplifting ending where the 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 patriarch of the family and uh, Makmobef as well say you know we we hope that now uh, Sabzian can you know you know that he's basically that he's learned his lesson and and he 
has a bright future ahead of him. So that's kind of where the film leads us or leaves us. Well, leads us as well, because it's definitely manipulating us to bring us to this conclusion. And so there's a couple interesting twists to this. First of all, in an interview, uh, Kiarostami says that actually, you know, he fully admits that the sound dropping out was made up, that actually he cut the sound out himself in post-production because he didn't like what Mahmoud was saying, uh, that, that there was a sense that like the director who this guy had been impersonating didn't really get the gravity of the situation or how emotional uh, that, that this, you know, this, this recently released prisoner was. And that as he put Sabzian on the back of his motorcycle and rode off, he just started talking self-indulgently about like his own life and his relationships and stuff going on with him. And it, it just, it didn't serve like the cathartic nature of the scene at all. So he cut out the sound and pretended the sound quality had died. Now, given that and other things that have sort of come out about Kiarostami over the years, um, I... I'm all, I almost even wonder if this is true and actually the sound did drop out and he's saying this afterwards. And I, I even wonder if he's saying it to undercut Makhmobov because him and that director had some tension during the 80s preceding this. This film came out in 1990 where Makhmobov was uh, like a very revolutionary, radical filmmaker who condemned a lot of older directors, including Kiarostami apparently, and uh, then kind of reconciled with him in the later part of the decade as it became more disenchanted from from the uh, Iranian regime. So, like, was there some element of that? There's also disagreement between them about how the film originated. Makhmobef says that he was the one who came up with the idea of, like, maybe we should shoot a movie about this guy who thinks he's me, and that he visited Kiarostami and talked about it, and then Kiarostami... Um, decide to run with it and Kiarostami says no it was more my idea from before so some interesting elements to that dispute um that uh, I'll, I'll talk about more at the end of this discussion but uh, you know so so that's something there where we're getting uh, a complicating factor to this this ending this you know supposedly documentary ending in a film that is already mixed fiction and documentary and documented a figure who himself is, you know, a, a fabricator. And then there's this other film, Close Up Long Shot, which is a just a more straightforward talking head documentary where uh, some filmmakers follow up with Hossein Sabzian and interview him about his life. It's six or seven years later. And it's it's funny how Criterion presents this, like their little introduction before you click on the film on, on this uh, documentary is something to the effect of Hossein Sabzian. His life was changed by his appearance in close up. Here are some interviews with friends and family who talk about their impression of the man. And, you know, he relays how he was uh, transformed into something new and all this. So it seems like it's going to be this really optimistic presentation. You watch the film and the guy is basically like, yeah, this, film really did not have a good effect on my life. In fact, cinema in general has been uh, kind of a virus that has like destroyed everything in my life. It's trapped me and led me astray and all of this. And he talks about Kiarostami uh, basically being a fraudster himself saying, well, he directed everything the way I would, but he's considered the great director. And you know, I was considered the imposter pretending to be a director. Kiarostami has compared this film to Dostoevsky, which seems kind of grandiose, but there really is an aspect to Sabzian, which is very reminiscent 
of a crime and punishment, and I think particularly notes from the underground, where he just articulates his despair uh, so pointedly in a way that reminds me of those characters in those books that, uh, you know, really, I, I think that that's one of, you know, there's so many aspects of this film which make it great, but that's, I think, one of the key, like, four or five elements, this the, this Dostoevskyan aspect to this very real person. Um, and I think that becomes all the more clear when you watch that follow-up documentary, Close-Up Long Takes, where he he becomes kind of exasperating at certain points, but also a bit awe-inspiring in terms of his, I don't know if it's exactly self-awareness, but certainly his self-analysis, his articulation, um, the way he goes from like being extremely depressed and depressing in his depiction of his life to almost kind of having a fervor and ecstatic quality by the end of that uh, long talking head aspect of that documentary. I actually, the weird comparison, but it reminds me of the Laura Dern monologue in Inland Empire, where she's just sitting in that room talking and talking and talking and talking. Uh, you get that with uh, with with this, uh, I was going to say this actor is, of course, famously not an actor, but Sabzian in uh, this this documentary. Again, the follow-up documentary to close-up. Supposedly, Kiarostami couldn't sleep for three days after seeing this documentary, which I can sort of understand. And again, this is all relayed in that Criterion uh, essay that uh, was written. I guess I should pull up the name here give credit where due. It was from 2010, I think, when the film was released on Criterion Collection by Godfrey Cheshire. And I have to say, like, this essay, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but it is itself complicated because it very confidently states certain things throughout that are contradicted by Kiarostami on the Criterion disc. So it's like, is he mispresenting something, or is does he have access to more information that contradicts the things Kiarostami said? It's all very confusing. You know, it's funny to see this film, having heard about Kiarostami for years, decades, really, uh, before seeing this, and having this impression of him as this kind of uh, authentic humanist, and really, in a way, the film itself, even without the further context I got afterwards, kind of gives you the sense of the guy as a trickster, more so than, you know, this just heart-on-the-sleeve, uh, you know, empathic uh, artist. So with all of that in mind, as I dug further into, um, you know, his story, it actually, this is this is sort of similar to what happened with um, the Jean Dielman review that I recorded recently with the, the, the conversation with Ashley Brandt, where I watched the film for the first time, and then, like, immediately before recording, looked on Wikipedia and saw that she had died of suicide after her mother had died. And it kind of boggled my mind and changed things a bit. So with this, same thing. I was, like, reading up, getting ready to record, and then suddenly went down this whole rabbit hole of uh, Kiarostami's, uh, the accusations against him in 2022, six years after he died, um, by the star of his film, Ten, which came out in 2002, Mania Akbari who has claimed that she actually shot all of the footage in the film for her own project without involvement from Kiarostami, and he plagiarized her and passed the work off as his own after saying he was going to edit it and then submitting it to festivals and not telling her what was going to happen, intimidating her. She accused him of sexual assault. Uh, there's this whole kind of horrific postscript to his uh, life and career 
that then, you know, and, and this goes down further rabbit holes. The first scene of the film, 10, is her and her child, who uh, is now her daughter, transitioned uh, from, you know, being a born a male. And so in the film, it's her and her son uh, arguing, and apparently the daughter was not uh, aware that this was being filmed. So there was some frustration with the mother, and then further frustration that this was presented as a film without apparently without the mother's permission. And there's like contradictions between uh, the mother's and the child's accounts of how that film unfolded and what Kiarostami's role in it is. So there's, it's a massive clusterfuck. And I have to say again, after reading all these accounts, the making of this film, meaning close up, just watching the film itself. I mean, I, I, I don't know what happened, what's true, what's not true, but it, I have to say, it does seem plausible at this first glance that um, there was some shenanigans going on with this director and um, what was true and what wasn't about the making of 10. So, you know, close up does not really inspire confidence in uh, who was necessarily telling the truth about what was made and why. Uh, so, So that's a whole other issue. Again, I haven't seen that film I was familiar with it as I was familiar with Kiristami, but uh, didn't find out any of this context until uh, right now. But, you know, close up itself is complicated. Its legacy is complicated by uh, the the treatment of the subject. And I, I guess I should say that um, somewhat cautiously. I think watching the documentary, you get a sense at a certain point, you're like very sympathetic with him. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about the, uh, the, the follow-up documentary, Close-Up Long Take, where it's uh, just focused on Sabzian, who's since passed away. And I'm sorry, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, but that's my uh, approximation of it. Uh, you know, there, there is a sense where about halfway through the, the, this documentary, as he's complaining more and more about how cinema ruined his life and everything's terrible, you, do kind of get a sense of like, okay, like there's a bit of a coping mechanism going on in this. You know, you you uh, obviously have been treated unfairly by life in a lot of ways. Probably some of these people, uh, you know, and it, it offers a different perspective on some of the stuff that's in the film, but you do get the sense like he's playing himself up in a way too. And, and that's actually an interesting dynamic of close-up is the sense that Sabzian and Kiarostami and maybe other people in the film as well all kind of have their own agendas. They're all an interesting mixture of caginess, earnestness, deception, self-deception, and they're all kind of bouncing off of each other and interacting with one another. Um, so the film is fascinating for that as well. Now, as I watched it, as I mentioned, that first scene was an interesting experience where I thought it was kind of going to be one thing and the rest of the film was sort of different. And watching it throughout, I kept having to rewind it. I would kind of zone out a little. It's a very mellow film. I would say of the sight and sound films that I'm watching for this miniseries, and I know the next two I've already seen, so I kind of have my opinion of them or my impression of them set already. This would probably be the one that I was least... Um, I don't know if I would even say least wrapped up in. It's extremely compelling. And I think by the end of it, I was hooked in a way I wasn't even half or even two thirds of the way through. But by the time it got to that ending, I was like, I could see why this film was in the, you know, the, the director's top 10. And it's interesting specifically that it's the director's, but I've, I, I think I've talked about that a little in the intro to this uh, podcast already. But 
you know, I could, I could see that. And at the same time, I think it is more cerebral. It's a little less visceral than even a Jean Dielman or a Beau Travail. Well, certainly than a Beau Travail. Um, so I was, you know, kind of going back and revisiting certain parts. If I felt like I missed certain dialogue. And as I said, it's like a huge chunk of this movie. And it's interesting how afterwards your impressions of it, the things you remember, um, are different, but like, I don't know, something like maybe 70, 80% of this movie is like a guy standing in a courtroom in lower quality uh, recording. I think it's like a 16 millimeter uh, uh, film and he's just sort of talking in court in this proceeding. You know, it's a courtroom document in many ways. It's like a court TV film. But, uh, you know, so so there's a lot of that and it, it is very absorbing and fascinating. I actually think this is one of those films, a lot of films you see and they, you know, you don't know where it's going to go and you're totally absorbed and then you come out of it afterwards and you're like, okay, you'll, you'll watch it again and you'll get new things out of it. But that that kind of gripping nature is lost. I feel like this actually might be more gripping to rewatch than it was to watch because um, knowing that full context, like there was a there was a lot of this film where I was kind of hanging on by my fingernails. Like, wait, what's going on? Is he shooting a documentary about this guy? Is this a fictional thing that's shot as a docudrama? I don't, I don't really know. And I mean, in some ways I still don't really know, but I have more of a sense of what the context of it is, uh, which is interesting to, uh, you know, consider what would this be like on a revisit to close with what's interesting to me about this film uh, well, one of many things interesting to me about this film is that, in general, I love kind of experimental, raw aesthetics. I love when a documentary realism is intermingled in a film and, you know, all, all of these elements that are there in close-up. But when I think about it, my favorite sequence of the film, the, the part I find the most powerful, and I think what bumps it up into a level of greatness it, it wouldn't have otherwise, is that very kind of classically framed uh, fictional sequence, fictional in the sense that he's reshooting something that happened with the participants, Uh, the sequence in the house where the character is kind of found out or realizes he's already been found out and there's a slow ticking. It's it's almost Hitchcockian in a way. Um, I'm I'm just so fascinated by this sequence and the performance. Uh, It's a masterpiece, you know, and it's funny because... In the close-up long-take documentary, Sabzian says he was like very uncomfortable shooting the sequence. It felt false to him or something like that. But he gives an amazing performance in this moment. And watching it, you know, it's funny watching these few dispersed um, enacted sequences that are like supposedly the most conventional parts of the movie are... Uh, really, like, you conceptually know, you're thinking as you watch it, okay, these are the real people. Wow, that's wild. But that kind of slips away as you're watching it because it just works as drama. Like, it just works as a scene from a conventional movie. Um, There's something very, like, Godfather-esque about it. I, I, I'm not sure exactly why, but that's the uh, the, you know big classic American film that comes to mind when I think about this sequence. Uh, Just the sense of like betrayal and slow dawning realization of what's about to happen and restraint. Like there's just something magnificent about it. And uh, that, that scene is so good. And I love the fact too, that it's like, 
so much of this film, so much of the, the, the power of this character, this real person story is the trespassing. There's something like parasite about it. This whole sequence in the house, it's shot in their actual house. He's reenacting something fairly traumatic that he experienced very recently of being kind of found out as an imposter in their home. And there's just, you know, it's a very lush, nice, uh, house, beautiful kind of furniture and decoration. And they're in, they have this garden front, this gate, and he's managed to find his way into this world. That's so foreign to his everyday world. And the police arrive to take him away. What's most notable about this film is it's formal experimentation. It's very cerebral quality of like, is it, or isn't it documentary or fiction? That's all fantastic. Like that. I can see why that elevates it into the top 10 films of all time on, you know, the sight and sound director's list. But I feel like this film in some ways, or, or this sequence, is the heart of the film. Uh, this very more conventional classical sequence. So I'll, I'll kind of end on that note. And um, it makes me want to revisit the film, but particularly that scene again and just watch it because there's just so much there. Um, the emotions that these 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 non-actors convey playing themselves uh, there, there's a famous quote, I can't remember who said it, maybe Francois Truffaut, I, I don't know. They said, you know, every uh, person can play one person perfectly themselves, whether they're an actor or not. And I don't know if that's true, it probably isn't, but in this particular case, it certainly is. That's it for this podcast. Next week, we will cover a film that I've seen many times before that I've loved for a long time, but it didn't quite make my favorites cut when I did that list. Uh, It didn't show up in some of the other series where I tried to cover films, great films that I hadn't discussed before. So here it is now. It is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, a silent film by F.W. Murnau from the 1920s. So of course, there isn't really sound to play, but I'll play a bit of the music to take us out and into next week. (laughs) 